Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. God, we thank you for this evening. I thank you for these men and women who are journeying, uh, journeying to this book together, Lord. This is an awkward book of the Bible. This is a book of the Bible that is just at times weird. And, but yet, Lord, it, it's, it's very real. And we get to see real people and, and their real issues. And, and God, that you show so much grace with these people. And you, you love these people. And I don't know why you continue to love them the way you love them, but you do. And that gives us so much hope. And so much hope that, Lord, that you, it, it helps us understand the very grace that you show us. And how you love us so much that you sent Jesus to reconcile us back to you by paying the price for our sin on that cross. To bear the very wrath that we deserve. Even though many days I feel like just as much of a bozo as Gideon or Abimelech. Selfish and and, and rude and all these things, Lord, that we don't want to be, but we find ourselves being. And and God, that's the real power of the book of Judges. We get to see you at work even when things aren't perfect, even when these people are just real winners sometimes, Lord. And I just thank you for this text we've got tonight. And uh, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Let's keep bringing people in here. Welcome, welcome. Ruth, good to see you. And Susan, my mom's coming in. And I, I mentioned as we were waiting to start this coffee, and actually my mom was just at my house this past week, and she got to have a cup or two of this. It wasn't bad. Maple bacon. All right. So go, go check some maple bacon coffee out if you're ever in the mood for maple bacon coffee. Okay. All right. One last double check here. Then we then we rock. Let me get my, my verses in order here. Okay. All right. So we are, let me scroll to the top of the page so we can see what's going on here. All right. We are in Judges uh, 10 and 11 tonight. And the judges cycle is for the major judges, the big names. And it starts off with Israel's apostasy, then Yahweh's anger towards that apostasy. And then Yahweh shows compassion on them. And then the compassion phase is when he raises up a judge, okay, to deliver them. And then that judge dies and Israel apostatizes all over again. It's just really, really depressing, horrible cycle. And that's what it is. But it's a cycle we see over and over again. When you live your life, the theme of the book of Judges is this. Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And when you live by that kind of personal relativism, this is your cycle. You're going to keep coming back here. Eventually, you'll you'll find yourself, especially if you're a person of faith, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, okay, yeah, you'll have this moment. You'll come back to God. Okay, yeah, I'm ready. And I'm ready to go, Jesus. And you you and me, and we're going to do things. And then you'll start apostatizing again then life will get in the way again. And the judge's cycle might just be your cycle. And that's why you need to pay attention. That's why the book of Judges really becomes real to you. It's like in the Wizard of Oz, when the black and white all of a sudden takes on technicolor. It's like, whoa, yeah. You're in the book of Judges, most likely, just saying. And so, yeah, Randy texts in, there doesn't seem to be apostasy between our, our, our first judges here tonight. And yes, just remember, um, this judges cycle is for the major judges, the big names. The minor judges, 
we're going to meet two minor judges right off the top and there's not going to be that so they just get barely any text at all remember shamgar he had like a couple of verses you know like an ox goat and went out, went after everybody slew a bunch of philistines there was no judges cycle in that they just showed up and did their thing and we're going to see that twice we're going to pull as much as we can out of these little verses we get but yeah th this cycle is just for the major judges okay so we'll see that but we got we got some minor ones too so we begin with the mysterious tola 10 1 to 2 after the time of abimelech okay we got to get over that guy he's done he's dead it's over but after that time so the the text wants you to remember that guy that really horrible abimelech all right after the time of abimelech a man of issachar named tola son of pua the son of Dodo. Hey, that's right up there with Nimrod, one of the greatest backhanded names in all the Bible. Dodo. Yeah. Interesting. He gets, I believe this is the only guy in the book of Judges that gets three generations listed out. That's not small, especially in a time period where, I mean, this dude's getting two verses and half of the first verse is just his genealogy. I'm just saying, wow. So Tola, son of Pua, the son of Dodo rose to save Israel. He lived in Shamir and the hill country of Ephraim. I have no idea why somebody from Issachar is in that hill country of Ephraim. Geographically speaking, that doesn't exactly make sense. It'd be kind of like saying someone from Illinois rose up in Texas somewhere. Like, really? Well, what's going on there? Okay, he led Israel 23 years and then he died and was buried in, in Shamir. My goodness. So we don't really know what's going on him. His name translates to worm. So how about that? You grew up with the name worm. And um, yeah, so he's, there's all kinds of humility about this guy. This guy is nothing to write home about. Maybe on purpose. You know, Israel just had a couple huge names. They just had Gideon, and they just had Avimelech. They needed a quiet name. They needed someone just to put in their time and do right, kind of stable, um, humble leadership. And you got to give toll of that. We don't know much about this guy, but we have stability. He was there for 20 years, and then he died. He was just, he was just a humble worm kind of a leader. I mean, that's his name. Um, but yeah. Yeah, Randy Texan, it wasn't Caleb making his home there. I think it was specifically a bad neighborhood for the truly devout to take out the uh, the various ites living there. Could be. And I, I don't know. It's, that's That'd be a great, great thing to find out. Check that out later on. You know, let, let us know. But yeah, I, I we don't, I don't know. What I do know is that he just did his own, he just did his thing and he lasted longer than Abimelech did. 20 years, my goodness. So let's continue. And that, that that's a minor judge. We don't know anything more about this. And we're not going to invent things more because we treat God's word fairly. And taking it at face value, that's what we get from Tola. Now what about Jair? Jair, there's no J in Hebrew. It's a, it's a Y, it's a Yair. What about Jair? Okay. He was followed by Jair of Gilead, who led Israel 22 years. He had 30 sons. Hold on. What? Seriously? Not this again. We just had this nonsense with Gideon. How many women, how many wives you have to have to have 30 sons? 
Never mind. Never mind the fact that some of these pregnancies are going to end in daughters. I'm sure some of them have to. He had 30 cents. Uh-oh. Is this going to be another one of those where he's not a king, but he's basically a king? He has a dynasty. He probably has a harem to make all these sons. Oh, my goodness. Okay. I, I, I don't want to read into it, but the text is giving us this again. One more time, he had all these sons, and they rode 30 donkeys. And then before you start going crazy, oh, wow, donkey, what a weak thing. Wrong. In the ancient world, that was one of the high-class ways for a king to travel, riding on a donkey. And, yeah, and that was, I mean, Palm Sunday. Jesus, the king of kings. Yeah, he's fulfilling prophecy. But that prophecy from Zechariah says, behold, your king riding on a donkey. Okay, I'm just saying. So it's like that is... That was the way kings were known to travel with style, was a donkey. Now, there's a time for battle, which is a war horse, but there's a time for just coming into town and they rode a donkey. I'm just saying, you'll find it in the, in the Old Testament. So all of them riding donkeys, they controlled 30 towns. So dude's got 30 sons riding 30 donkeys and living in 30 towns. So he's got geography. He's got some money. He's got, he has a lot going on for this guy here. Okay. Just saying. And, uh, they controlled 30 towns in Gilead, which to this day are called Havolt Jair. He even gets his name on the geography. When Jair died, he was buried in Kamon. Wow. Mick texted in to give a sense of chronology. Jair was likely a contemporary of Ruth. Yeah, and remember the, from the Ruth story, this is the time of Ruth. Ruth was when the judges judged. And so this is... Ruth, there's a reason why Judges and Ruth come right by each other in the Bible. They're right in the same time period. There was no king, okay? That just was in Ruth's day or in this day. There's just no king. It is, the text says in Ruth in the time when the judges judged. Well, that's it. And so, yes, we got the mysterious Tola. We got the regal Jair. Um, you know, just before we, going on to the blue text there, there's something to be said about simple obedience and little publicity. Tola is a good character for you. Be that kind of a person. Be that kind of a leader. Be that kind of an influencer. I love Eric Metaxas's book, Seven Men. And he goes through seven different guys and talks about their faith. And when he, one of the men he went through was George Washington. And here's the three words I took from George Washington. He described him as sober, steady, calm. And I said, holy moly. I need to be that kind of dad, sober, steady, calm. Holy moly, I need to be that kind of husband, sober, steady, calm. I need to be that kind of pastor, that kind of counselor, that kind of person, that kind of brother, that kind of son, sober, steady, calm. Um, I'm seeing that here just in general here. There's something humble and steadying about Tola. Simple obedience and little publicity. And Jair, the regal Jair, what are the motivations going on here? I don't know. Jair seems to be, uh, we don't know anything about this guy, except that the length that he ruled and more about his family. But to have 30 sons and he got them all decked out and they controlled 30 towns, that just screams to our mind, let alone the original readers, power and money and geographical influence 
I don't think it's fair for me to surmise more about that, but it's a fair question for you. As you live this life, as you serve our risen Savior, Jesus, what are your motivations? Are they about your name? Are they about your legacy? You know, certain people get to certain points in their life and they begin to think about legacy. What are they leaving behind? Who are they leaving behind? What are they leaving behind for those people? I don't know. You get to that point where you do. I mean, my wife and I have retirement stuff taken out of our check every month. It's just like, you know, thinking about college one day for the kid. I mean, you just think about these things. What's going to be the legacy? And you can get lost in those weeds. You can start making decisions thinking about not eternity, but thinking about your life. Say, oh, well, what's it going to be said of me if I do this? That's just a very self-focused way. Like, it's not exactly wrong, but it just reveals a lot about you if you're only about that. As opposed to what's going to bring God the most possible glory. Even if I don't have to get any, any glory at all. Even if I end up being like Tola and I get nothing said about me. Even if I have nothing to write home about. Except, you know, I got some genealogy, I guess, and I got my faithful serving. Which is it? Are you more of a Tola or more of a Jair? Maybe we're a mixture of both. But think about your motivations. Well, what about Israel's apostasy and Yahweh's anger? Well, this is going to come up here, six to nine. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Oh, Israelites. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan and Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. Israel was in great distress. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, yeah. Uh, there's not much to be said here that hasn't been said before. Our God is a jealous God. If you don't take commandment number one, if you don't take the Ten Commandments number one, you should know their God's before me. If you don't take that seriously, God gets angry. Remember, think of that, and that's going to be Jephthah's mistake a little bit later as he starts playing politics. Many people will say, will say well, God, you can worship your God, and I'll worship my God. You've got yours, I've got mine. And there's a theological error there. The theological error is of equality. You know what? There's, there's, it's a big multiple choice test. You can choose A, B, C, or D. And every choice is a valid choice when you fill out your Scantron page, okay? And that's exactly wrong theologically. God is the only one on the page. If this were the Oscars, the nominees for God are, there's not four nominees. There's one. Okay, God is, the, is, is there's nobody that is in God's category but God. And to treat anybody as, as an option is to demean God. And so to, to lower him and... That's just not what's allowed theologically. There is um, only God and only he. That's why we say holy. It's unique. It's special. And nobody else is in, is, is in his class. So, yeah. So they're worshiping all these others as if they're the same or good enough. Or I don't know what their motivations are, but they did it. 
And maybe they thought God wouldn't notice. I don't know. But God did notice and God acted. Now we've got trouble. And now they're back to uh, Israel apostatize all over again. So we got a telling conversation. We're in chapter 10 now, of course. Here we go, 10 to 16. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord, we have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. Now, you might be saying there, well, good for you. You know, bless your heart, and you made a bad choice, but then you turned around and made a good choice. Just slow those horses for one second. Because as we read this, I don't think God's going to be there. I think God is seeing through their crap. And they've been doing this over and over. And I'm just saying, because how's God going to react here? We would expect God to go, well, you know, 1 John 1, 9, you confessed your sin. Well, by golly, you know what? I, I, now I, I got to do what, what, what the text says. Oh, we've, we've sinned against you, forsaken our God and serving the Baals. So God brings it, doesn't he? Check this. The Lord replied when the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, and the Amalekites, and the Moanites, when they oppressed you and you cried out to me for help, did I not save you out of their hands? God's like saying, we've done this. We played this game before. You mess up. I send punishment. And then you cry out and I deliver you. Remember that judges cycle that Joel's one day going to talk about? That's what you keep doing to me. But, ooh, not a fun but. But, but. you have forsaken me and served other gods. Oh, scary words coming up next. So I will no longer save you. Ooh. Oh, snap. I mean, what would they say on the street? They'd say, God's not playing. Yeah, Mix texted in uh, Galatians 6, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Boom. Also, God knows when repentance is real and not. Yeah, I put here on the blue text, the repentance of convenience. I mean, we call that like foxhole prayers. You pray to God only when you're in dire need. When it's convenient for you to pray to God, when you have no other choice, you pray to God. Otherwise, you're like, I got it. It's on me. I mean, I will no longer save you. He continues, go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. Dang. But the Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of their foreign gods among them and served the Lord. And the NIV says he could bear Israel's misery no longer. What's really cool is that um, we've had exactly seven judges up to this point. Ophniel, Ehud, Shamgar. Barak, Gideon, Tola, Jair. We have seven. One of those cool numbers of God. And, well, here's what verse 16 says literally in the Hebrew. It says, and his soul, meaning God, was short because of the efforts of Israel. So 
far from being a statement of Yahweh being overcome with compassion and once again to deliver them, God is frustrated, he's exasperated, he's ticked off. It's like he's just not, he's like, you know what, I'm not doing it anymore. We're not doing it. It's like that person who's been enabling that, that individual that's been hurting them all these years. When they finally stop, and say, you know, no, we're not going there again. Enough is enough. That's where God's at right here. And this is the God who sees through the manipulations. Israel knew how to manipulate God, and God called him on it. Didn't I save you all those other times? Every other stinking situation you were in, I saved you, didn't I? Yeah. And he didn't say it, but he doesn't need to say it. What he could say is, you think you would learn. You think you would learn after I keep saving you from all these people, all these messes you keep getting yourself into. You think you would learn by like salvation number three. That this kind of game, I'm not supposed to play with you. That I'm not playing with you. You can't play games and try to manipulate me. You hear that, Gideon? Oh, master manipulator. Oh, I said I wasn't going to go back there. Fine. But you would think they would get it. And see, God's not having it anymore. He's like, that's it. That's it. Yeah, Mick texted in, only purely emotional and circumstantial repentance. Yeah, it's manipulation. Randy texted in, the number of completion, number seven, as I understand it. Yeah, God was completely fed up. You're right. Yes. God, one of God's numbers is seven. And he created seven days, or for seven days, he gave us that model. And that was a complete thing. Yeah. Well, verse 16, parental frustration. Let me tell you about, about Zoom. This is an era right now where I have a lot of Zoom. Okay, I do ministry over Zoom. We're obviously doing ministry over Zoom right now. But I've got Zoom all day. My kids are, are elementary age kids. So they've got remote learning right now. So they're over Zoom. There was a situation they put me in today. So my boy, he's on his Zoom class, okay? So, you know, and eventually so he, he's playing that game where he mutes himself, he unmutes himself, and he you know, does that kind of stuff. And so my daughter came in, and she was just having a moment, okay, where she was just being loud, she wasn't listening, blah, 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 blah. Okay, so I have to do this kind of, I have this weird dance I've got to do. And that dance is, I got to kind of loudly whisper to my son, are you muted? And then if he's muted, great. Then I can go, get out. I can tell the, tell the other one who shouldn't be messing around because he's on his, on his Zoom, knock it off. But I can't do that unless he's muted, okay? So this, this, this little dance that I'm in, it's like they put daddy handcuffs on me where I don't know what I can do. Because no matter what I do, I'm going to be in a bad spot. I'm going to embarrass somebody, and I'm just going to be a jerk, essentially. And it's like, because I can't speak because everything is live, because there's a Zoom going on there. It's kind of like when you're in walking to the grocery store, and one of the kids start pulling a, a fast one, and just start, you know, throwing a temper tantrum, and saying to yourself, like, you're not my dad, or something like that. My mom's in on the Zoom. Mom, if I ever did that, forgive me. I'm getting my comeuppance. It's like, they, you can be held hostage in a moment. And you're thinking to yourself, boy, when I get to the car, when I can finally talk to you and let you let, let you know, when I can finally give you punishments, there's just kind of this selfish thing within a dad at that point. We're just like, I'm frustrated, I'm angry, I'm upset, I don't know what to do, and I can only try to do whatever I can do in this situation to get to a quiet moment where I can finally let them have it. 
and finally let them know what punishments are going to be or what. Okay, that's very frustrating. And I'm there a lot. Okay, I'm not saying my kids are smart and they know what they're doing, but it happens a lot. And Zoom just exacerbates it. Because later on, my daughter's on her Zoom and my son's kind of like, you know, doing that little Michigan J frog. Hello, my baby. He's coming in there, you know, prancing around the room. And it's like, get out of her Zoom. You are not in preschool. It's like, they don't need to see you. It's like, what are you doing? Okay. Now, all of that, that's how I read verse 16. God is ticked. He's frustrated. He's angry. He's had enough. My dad used to say, I preach till I'm blue in the face. Right? He's had enough. But see, God can be all that and not be me. Because I'm selfish and sinful, even on my best days. God's not. Verse 16, parental frustration, zoom in, God. See, God's not selfish here, but God can be self-focused and not be sinful. And God's like, I'm not going to do this anymore, Israel. Enough is enough. We're not going there anymore. And you know what? They want a well-trained God. Is your God well-trained? Often as Christians, we want God to perform when we want him to perform. We want him when we need him. Otherwise, we don't really want to be bothered by him. We want a God who will perform according to our criteria, according to our timing, and according to our agenda. We want a well-trained God. God, you know what? Stay in your lane. There's no one like you. But I need you when I need you. And until then, I got this. You may be clutching your pearls and going, how dare you? I would never. Baloney. I bet you do sometimes. I know I do. You see... We come to God and we pray only when we're at our worst, only when life is at its most messed up. We come to God really concerning God, thy will be done versus my will be done. Most of our problems are we live in the town of my will be done instead of thy will be done. It's like we got, we got to check that. Is your God well trained? And if he is, shame on you. You're not training anybody. Shame on me is that we can't go there. That's where Israel wants. They want their convenient God who's going to show up and bail them out of spiritual prison again and again. Because they're God's chosen people. Well, Jesus died on the cross. He paid my debt. I've been washed by the blood of the lamb. Look at all these spiritual categories I can throw myself into. Are they my constant get-out-of-jail-free card when it comes to glorifying God? I am so thankful for God's grace. I am so thankful for God's mercy that God doesn't give up and hasn't given up on me. I am so glad God never spoke those words to us that he just spoke in verse 15 and 16 to Israel. But my goodness, I can say all that, and that those verses can still kick me in the butt. And they ought to be kicking you. Is your God well-trained? Yeah, Mick texts in, we treat God like a genie in the bottle. Sure. That genie's not going anywhere until you rub it. Then all of a sudden, poof. Now I, get my, now I get my answers my way. I'm God for a little while. We gotta be careful. See, this book of Judges just, just man, it works us over. We gotta be careful with this. We gotta continue. 
Um, they got to, they're, they're going to, Israel's in a bad spot. So they're going to recruit somebody. What are they going to do? Where's my text? All right, here we go. 10, 17 to 11, 11. When the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mitzpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, whoever will take the lead in attacking the Ammonites will be head over all who live in Gilead. Okay, so he's promising the presidency, the kingdom, whatever it is. Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. His father, in fact, was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Oh, no. Oh, this is Avimelech all over again, isn't it? Which means he's going to be a son of, of Gilead, but mom's a prostitute. So he's going to be at most... Um, this is one of the few times you can cuss and get away with it, a bastard. He can be like that son that's not legitimate. You know, pardon me if I offended anybody. He, it's like he's, he's not going to be a legitimate son. He's not, there's going to be more family drama. We learned this with Abimelech. Oh, no. Okay. Uh, Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tov, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. So once again here, he's not Disney's Robin Hood and his little merry prancing men. No, he's a thug and he's got a bunch of thugs following him. Scoundrels, scofflaws, ne'er-do-wells, whatever you want to call them. You know, it's like he's got, just like Avi Malik, all over again. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went up to, to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Notice they didn't say, come be our head. They promised the head. They promised like the position. Just come be our commander. Come on. Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me? And this is actually a good Jephthah moment, all right? He's sticking up for himself. I got to give him this. Didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? Oh, gosh, that doesn't preach regarding your prayer life. Imagine this is exactly what God's told Israel. Why are you coming to me now? Only when you're in trouble all over again. Didn't I deliver you all those times and you run back to those gods? Let those stinking gods deliver you. Come on, you love them so much. Turn to them for a change. See what that gets you. Just saying. It's right here, just a few verses prior. Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? Isn't the book of Judges fun? This is like a soap opera. It's worse than a soap opera. Some of these things on a soap wouldn't exist on a soap opera. They'd be like, no one would watch that. No one would believe that. Uh, the elders of Gilead said to him, nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Okay, well, I guess they, they mean it, I guess. Come with us to fight the Ammonites. And you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. Okay, now they bring up the head. Okay, all right. Jephthah answered, suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? He's, he's the son of a prostitute, not a legitimate son of Gilead. Are they going to get the best out of him? And then all of a sudden go, we didn't mean head. I mean, come on, you can be a nice general if you want. But I mean, come on. You know, people wiggle off that hook all the time. And he's saying, I'm not going to play your games. 
if I come and do what you say, ask me to do, and I do it, I'm getting the prize. Are you, I'm not going to give you a chance to wiggle off. We're not having that. We've got to give Jephthah credit. He's being bold here, how we would expect him to be bold. Okay, great. Good for you. You know what? Yes, I like this. All right. There's not going to be a lot for Jephthah that I'm going to like. Okay, there's going to be some. He's got more than most, but he's still a bonehead at the end. Okay, I can't get ahead of myself. The elders of Gideon replied, the Lord is our witness. Oh, they bring God into this. They bring in God's holy covenant name, Yahweh. Yahweh is our witness. They're doing an oath here. All of a sudden, it's like no one asked you to make an oath, but they're making an oath. Oh, by the way, that's going to be the Jephthah story. I got I to let it go. I got to let that go. An unnecessary oath. All right, here it is. One more unnecessary oath. The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead. And the people made him head and commander over them. And he repeated all his words before the Lord at Mitzvah. So these elders here are, are just, they're, they're opportunistic. They see an opportunity. They don't care what kind of guy they got to get. They're going to get that guy and they're going to try to win at all costs. Does that speak to you? Is there something about them that's you? You might turn to somebody who's empty. You know, Vince Lombardi, I, I realize I'm in bear country, but, you know, he's one of the greatest coaches ever. He once said, winning isn't everything. It's the only thing. Just win. I forget, was it Ty Cobb? There's, there's a, there was another quote that says, they didn't ask me how I won. They will ask me, did I win? Not all the ends justifying the means. Manipulate, buy, coerce, negotiate, victory. Are Christians like that? Are we ever like that? Are we ever opportunists when it comes to the things of God? Some of us might even say, ooh, the Lord is opening a door for me. If the end of that sentence is, so I can now get what's mine, or I can now get some glory, or I can now look really good, or I can now finally have this I no longer, I didn't have before. If you are the answer to the predicate of that sentence, the Lord opened up an opportunity so I can increase. Well, who the heck is decreasing? How about that Moses? He told you to speak to the rock and you struck it. Who increased in that moment? You. Who decreased? God. And that's why you didn't enter the promised land. You see, are we spiritual opportunists with God? Are we like, well, God, I'm praying for this opportunity. I'm praying for this. If you're praying mostly about you and what might make you look good or might make you, just be careful. Just be careful. Because it's very tempting to be a spiritual opportunist when it comes to God. God, I'm just waiting for my opportunity so I can finally get when the getting is good. That is not thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That is my kingdom come. God, will you make my kingdom come? I might be overthinking this. This is kind of kicking my butt right now, too. I'm one pastor on a big church staff. 
My name's like this. I used to be the pastor at a small church. My name was like this. At some point, life and ministry has to be not about your name and getting what's yours. All the big mistakes I made in my life had at their minimum, I'm going to get what's mine. Almost every one of my sinful escapades, all these things, all these bad, horrible choices I've made had some kind of selfish garbage like that at the base. I was opportunistic. Are you? He's being so in my face today. I am. But just know that spiritual two by four is already rocked across my face. All my toes, I mean, I limped in here. All my toes are crunched up. They're broken over this, spiritually speaking. Make text in it. Saddest when it happens in churches or personality or celebrity pastors. Yes. And uh, uh, Philip texting, don't hit rocks with the staff. Book of Numbers. There you go. Um, yeah, Mick texted a great quote. Oh, my goodness. He said, I'd rather be a Tola pastor than a Jephthah one. Jephthah gets a lot more words about him. But who's really about God's glory? Who got more of a well done? And what kills me is that Jephthah is in Hebrews and Tola's not. Now, some of these boneheads are in that Hebrews Hall of Fame chapter means that God uses whatever faith is there. He really means it when the faith is like a mustard seed. He can use a lot. Just saying, um, yeah, don't, be, don't have this opportunistic mentality with God. Don't do it. A political back and forth. We'll end our time with this political back and forth. Let me scroll the page down here. You're like, come on, we got a presidential debate coming up in a few minutes. I want to go to it. Okay, fine. Here we go. 11 to 28. Excuse me, 12 to 28. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king with a question. What do you have against me that you've attacked my country? The king of the Ammonites entered Jephthah's messengers. When Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabok, all the way to the Jordan. Now give it back peaceably. Jephthah said, no. Jephthah sent back messengers to the Ammonite king saying, this is what Jephthah says. Israel did not take the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up out of Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and on to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, give us permission to go through your country. The king of, the king of Edom said, no, he would not listen. They sent also to the king of Moab and he refused. So Israel stayed at Kadesh. Next, they traveled through the wilderness, skirted the lands of Edom and Moab, passed along the eastern side of the country of Moab, and camped on the other side of the Arnon. They did not enter the land of Moab, for the Arnon was its border. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites. By the way, not Ammonites, Amorites. Pay attention there. The Amorites, who ruled in Heshbon, and said to him, let us pass through your country to your own place. Sihon, however, did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. He mustered all of his troops in the camp at Jahaz and fought with Israel. Then the Lord God of Israel gave Sihon and his whole army into Israel's hands, and they defeated them. Israel took over all the land of the Amorites, who lived in that country, capturing all of it from the Arnon to the Jabok and from the desert to the Jordan. Now, since the Lord, the God of Israel, has driven the Amorites out before his people, Israel, what right have you to take it over? 
Will you not take what your God Kemosh gives you? Likewise, whatever the Lord our God has given us, we will possess. Are you any better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever quarrel with Israel or fight with them? For 300 years, Israel occupied Heshbon, Arawer, and the surrounding settlements and all the towns along the Arnon. Why didn't you retake them during that time? I have not wronged you, but you were doing me wrong by waging war against me. Let the Lord, the judge, decide and dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. Mic drop. Boom. The king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. He's just like, oh, whatever. Well, number one, Jephthah makes a historical point. Everything that Jephthah said is largely true. It is if it, it fits with what Deuteronomy and what we're told in, in Numbers and Deuteronomy. Yes, that is the wilderness wanderings entering the promised land pretty much to a T. Okay, they did not enter into Moab. Edom turned them away. And you would think the Edomites would recognize that, you know, but no, they turned them away. And this is like Moses' Moses's extended family kind of back, back, back. Nope. You're, so they couldn't enter the promised land easily. They had to go all the way around. And they had to go to, and so they ran into Sihon and his neighboring king, Og. And Sihon and Og went to war. So we have an historical point here that Jephthah makes. It's like, what are you people talking about? We never entered your land. And by the way, there's a warning to that historical point. The people's land we did enter, they were defeated. So you really want to play this game, Ammonites? You want to go there? Jephthah makes a theological point. His theological point is, um, I mean, your God gives you your land, my God gives me mine. That's that mistake we made in the beginning, where there's no other gods before me. It's like, Jephthah's making some kind of God of equality point. You've got your God, I've got mine. Your God gives you yours, my God gives me mine. Yeah. See, boneheads do that when they go, you know what, Christians, you really can't criticize other faiths because Christianity, you had your problems too. And what you did, you really can't criticize people. Really? You're going to play this equivalence type of game? So there's a real weakness to that, but it emotionally plays. So he's making this emotional argument to them. You've got your God. He gave you your territory. We're not over there. We've got our God. He gave us our territory, so leave us alone. He's making a theological point, but he makes three errors. His first error is that equivalency garbage. He kind of limits God, his God, Yahweh, to be like one of many. Okay, I'm going to follow my God and his decisions. You're going to follow, you know, basically just whatever. He limits God. He makes he makes an error there. The second one is, um, he gives power to a God what was never belonging to it in the first place. Um, biblical faith is it's like he's taking God out of the infinite and making the more temporary more important. Like God's eternal plans here don't really matter. It's just, you know what, God's got, got me here. I got to do what God says. He's kind of like, I'm just, I'm just following orders. Leave me alone. And there's just, he's passing the buck here. Um, but he, he's giving power to a God that doesn't really exist as well. That's a, his, really his second point is he's giving power to the Ammonites' God as equal to our God. 
And that's, that's blatantly mis misrepresenting the spirit of commandment number one in the Old Testament, the, the Ten Commandments. That Chemosh has just as much right to his stuff as Yahweh does to his stuff. And um, I like what... Um, I like what John MacArthur once said about these idols. It's like these idols, they aren't. It's like there's no real backing there. They're just kind of like these variations of Satan, essentially. There's just, there's just whatever's not God, they're that. Okay, they're just, there's not an option there to fight back on. And yeah, um, Mick texted in, the boy knew his history and made great points. And the, the Lord trumps Chemosh, Yahweh trumps Chemosh. And that's his third mistake, by the way. Check out First uh, First Kings eleven. It says the god of the the Ammonites is not Chemosh. Chemosh is Moab. The Ammonite. The Lord took great pains to name the god of the Ammonites. It's Molech. Moloch. Molech. Molech means king. All right. That is like the detestable. Like people today who read the Old Testament into the into our time now, Molech was one of those gods you sacrificed your babies to. It's like the original abortion god. Okay, you literally put the babies on the fire. And that was, that's how you worship Molech. Like, hard to forget guy. Okay, and so he gets it wrong when he's talking to them. It's like, oh, you got our god wrong. That's his third mistake. And his technicality is, he has a technical point here. When he brings up Balak, um, Balak comes from the book of Numbers. This is the Balaam story. Remember the first time a guy's ever talked out of his uh, donkey kind of thing? That's the Balaam story. Okay, Balak hired Balaam to curse Israel three different times, and he couldn't do it. Remember that fun story? And so Balak did not technically attack Israel, but his intentions were to attack Israel. But God, speaking through Balaam, ironically, just made it so it didn't happen. On the technicality, he's right, but Balak's intentions were to fight. And... Um, yeah, Randy texts in, God had given that option to the Israelites by telling them in chapter 10 to seek help from Baal and the Chemosh. Yeah, he, he, he did ironically say that. Um, but yeah, he's yeah, he was letting them know, you're going to turn to those people, see what they do for you. It's kind of like what Jonah finds out in the belly of the wells. These idols are worthless. It's like all these idols of the nation are worthless. They have no value. And Mick texts in, God makes, makes idols... Um, yeah, uh, the idols made Molech, the, uh, he calls him the child luster guy. Uh, killing, definitely killing of children, you bet. Yeah, well, Jonah's final point is that here it is. Um, you got to fight? Let's go. I got no issue with you, but let's go. And the Ammonites just ignored it. Go, oh, whatever. Yeah, you had all this time to retake this land that was so precious to you all of a sudden. And now that I'm here, now you're going to now you're going to start uh, soiling your britches. You had all the, you had 300 years to do this. Why didn't you? Because you don't care about it. You just want to fight. And uh, so here it is. Let, let 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 the true God, Yahweh, judge all this. And the Ammonites are like, yeah, whatever. Who cares? You see, and then they ignored. What you think about God is important. Your theology is important. That's why we call this masterclass theology, not because I'm a master or Mick is the master, but because we're studying the master. What you think about God is important. Maybe you think God just hates you and God just puts up with you. And that God is just rolling his eyes every time you pray. Like, oh, here he is again. Maybe you think that God is... 
this kindly old grandpa with white hair up on the mountain. God is just all love and God just, God, you know, God talks big, but you know what, when the grandkids come around, that grumpy bear doesn't turn to grumpy anymore. He's like, oh, come on, come here, come here, kitties, you know, come here, come here, my little, my little grandkids. And you know what, God, you know, God, God doesn't really mean all that. He just really, at the end, he's just going to show love to me. Because why would God be otherwise? See, what you believe about God is everything. It completely affects how you approach him. Do you take him at his word? Some people are like, I really like that Jesus. But that Old Testament God, oh my gosh. Oh, I'm tired of him. Smite this. Judge that. When in reality, we see the Old Testament God is just like this huge amount of love. It's an amazing amount of compassion. An unimaginably vast pit of grace. Wow. Do you make equivalencies concerning God? Maybe you do it culturally speaking. Well, I know God doesn't want me to do this because the Bible says this, but I'm not blowing up buildings with a, with a pipe bomb. I'm not defrauding old women from their pensions. I'm not, see, you come up with these equivalencies and these excuses. And to wiggle away from being faithful. I know I've got my past. And part of my past was I did something like that. I wasn't really playing equivalencies. I was just playing with God's grace. I would do my daily sins. And hit the pillow at night feeling pretty bad. And one of the things that kept me going was, you know... I'm going to be a doctor one day, or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in my frat house and there's a bunch of other guys that are a lot worse than me. And I, I at least have a little bit of Jesus in me. And these guys, I mean, come on. See, I was playing little games like that. I was putting myself to sleep instead of being broken and humble and being more of a Tola. I was more of a me. And, and I needed to be more about God. I needed more David in Psalm 51, being humble and contrite. And these weird equivalencies we sometimes play. How could Jesus be the only way to the Father? How could John 14, 6 really be real? Because if that's true, then how many billion people can't go to God because of that? Maybe that can't be true. See, we say things like that. We might think things like that. If we really think about things, but well, maybe that person speaking on the TV arguing against my faith, you know, he has a point maybe that, oh, you know what, the Inquisition or the Crusades or whatever, you know, it's... That was bad. So, you know, when, when people go on a jihad, that's bad. So, you know what? Every religion has their bad. And so one religion is the same as the other. See, there's the point. There's the equivalency. One God's the same as the other God. And see, are you ever like that? Do you ever find yourself letting yourself off the hook because of an equivalency? You're not like, maybe it's like a, a negative equivalency, which would be like, a, you're not like someone else. I don't know. Mech text in, God tells us to love him with all of our minds. So yes, our belief and understanding of God is supremely important. These classes are a labor, labor, labor of love to the God we believe in. Amen. 
because we love God, we want to know him more and more. And again, why we do these classes. I'm so glad you're here, everybody. Faith is built on reason, our mind, or what we think about God. It all matters. Yes. You cannot love the Lord your God with all your mind. If you're landing that plane on the wrong landing. Where you land your theological plane is built upon God's word. At no point can you say this, well, my God would never say that. I don't care about your God. I care about God. Your interpretation or your rendering or your reading of scripture, I don't care about your reading of scripture. I expect you not to care about my reading of scripture. Well, the scripture I read says this. It better darn well say that. Because if it doesn't, this is more about you than about God's word. That's why I got to stop myself sometimes from going after Gideon so hard. Because the text doesn't say it. And when the text is silent, I kind of have to be silent. There's just only so much I can say. I can try to ask questions about it. And I can wonder about things. I can see what plays out. And say, okay, well, maybe this something happened. But I just don't know. There's a quote here. It's, it's uh, not the size of our faith, but... And who that faith is in. Yeah, faith always has an object. Faith is less about you and more about who your faith is in. Randy texts in, it's like football when both teams have a, have a penalty and they, they offset. It doesn't work that way with religion. Yeah, one is bad, the other is bad. So you know what? Let's just wash it all out. There's just a lot to think about with this text. This is like an introduction to Jephthah. Next week, we're going to see the rest of the Jephthah story. And we can read about these characters. We can read about what God did and what God didn't do, because God seems kind of passive here. He didn't raise up Jephthah. The town elders raised him up. They kind of bribed him. They said, you know what? Come do this and do that, and we'll let you have your way. Because God just said he's not going to raise anybody up this time. How does God save people in the book of Judges? He raises somebody up. He ain't doing it this time. The people rose someone up. This is all very humanistic. So our response to God's word cannot be humanistic. It must be God. Godistic. Ooh. It must be all about God. How we respond to God's word needs to say more about God. And let's focus on us. Just a lot to process tonight. I thank you for being here. This is the hard one. This is a lot of bad examples here in our text, but we learn from the bad examples. What are your motivations? Are you all about yourself? Are you opportunistic with God? Is God a well-trained God? Hmm? What you think about God is important. And do you ever make those equivalencies and kind of wiggle yourself off a hook? Big text tonight. But uh, I hope it's given us a lot to think about. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.